So the reading is um, from the book of 2 John that you can follow in your Bible in the New International Version or directly from your booklets. So 2 John. The elder, to the lady chosen by God and to her children whom I love in the truth. And not I only, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, will be with us in truth and love. It has given me great joy to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as the Father commanded us. And now, dear lady, I am not writing you a new command, but one we have had from the beginning. I ask that we love one another. And this is love that we walk in obedience to his commands. As you have heard from the beginning, his command is that we walk, that you walk in love. I say this because many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is a deceiver and the antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does, not, and, and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. I have much to write to you. But I do not want to write. But I do not want to use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to visit you and talk with you face to face, so that our joy may be complete. The children of your sister, who is also by God, send their greetings. Well, it is a joy to be with all of you this morning. It's been good to be here uh, this weekend, and I bring you greetings from Bangkok City Baptist Church. Uh, it is a church that prays uh, somewhat regularly for uh, Ambassador International Church. Uh, even this morning, they'll be praying for you, uh, and I hope that you know that, <clears throat> that there is a, another church in, uh, in a different country who is regularly praying for you. I hope that encourages you and would ask that you would pray for us as well. Well, there's a, a somewhat humorous story about the Apostle John, the author of this letter, uh, that was told by the church fathers. So this is not from the Bible, but the church fathers told this story. And it involved John's conflict with a man named Serenthus, who was a, a prominent early heretic who believed and taught that Jesus was merely a human being. So he believed and taught that Jesus was not God. Well, that obviously didn't sit well with John, who had seen with his own eyes that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so one day, John and Serenthus happened to visit the same public bathhouse at the same time. Now, these bathhouses were important centers for relaxing and reading and especially socializing. And the story goes that when John saw Serenthus in the bathhouse, uh, he had absolutely no desire to socialize with a known heretic. And so he quickly ran out of the bathhouse, out into the streets, yelling, let us fly in case this bathhouse falls down because Serenthus, an enemy of the truth, is inside. I wonder what you think about that. 
Do you think John's actions were justified? Was John right to, to flee as he did? Was he right to label Serenthus as an enemy of the truth? Would you say that John's words were loving? Well, if you're all familiar with John's writings in the New Testament, you likely know that John emphasizes the importance of love over and over again. In fact, he's often called the apostle of love because he so often spoke about Christian love. But John's encounter with Serenthus also tells us that John was an apostle of truth. And in fact, John never writes much about love without also writing about truth. And he never writes much about truth without writing about love. I wonder if that's true of you as well. Are you as concerned about both love and truth as John was? Or do you tend to think that one is more important than the other? Do you perceive love and truth to be in conflict in some way? Well, this morning we're going to look at 2 John. And then in this little letter, John claims that truth and love are key elements that distinguish Christians from the world. Truth and love are interconnected. They're like twin stars that are guiding the church. So we may consider ourselves zealous for the truth, but neglecting love actually distorts the truth. And yet at the same time, genuine Christian love must be informed by the truth. I like to give a, a main point of the text that I'm preaching. Here's what I think is the main point of 2 John. Hopefully it's also the main point of this sermon. The main point is this. Church, real Christianity involves love, and real Christianity involves truth. Walk in both. Real Christianity involves love, and real Christianity involves truth. Walk in both together. I have three points this morning, and I want to begin by considering point number one, the context for our truth and love. The context for our truth and love, which we're going to see is the church. You can see in 2 John, in, in verse 1, that this letter is addressed to the elect lady and her children. Now, who is this lady that John is speaking about? Well, I think a close reading of 2 John shows us that this letter isn't addressed to a woman at all, but rather to a specific local church community. And one clue that this letter is addressed to a church is that John easily slips from singular pronouns, like in verse 4, to plural pronouns, like in verse 6, 8, 10, and 12. That suggests that John is easily moving from addressing the church, singular, to church members, plural. That's something you can see a little bit better in the Greek, uh, maybe some other translations of the Bible. It's a little bit harder in English. But we should also remember that it is common throughout the Bible for God's people to be referred to using feminine metaphor. So the church is frequently, uh, it's fr- frequently referred to as the bride of Christ. Or in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter refers to the church as she who is in Babylon. So just to get to the point, many Christians from the early centuries of the church on have concluded that this lady is John's metaphorical way of greeting a local church. And her children mentioned here are therefore just the church members. The Christians that that make up this church are so committed that they can be called her children. Reminds us that the church is a family. So then consider what these verses tell us about the church as the context for our truth and love. First, notice that the church is who God has set his love upon. 
John reminds us that this lady is chosen by God. This church has been elected by God. It's the same word used in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 to 6, which says, For God chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Friends, do you see how the language of God's choice, His election, is also the language of God's love. God chooses to love. God doesn't have to love us. In fact, if you think about it, He really shouldn't love us. We are born as God's enemies. We are born sinners. And in keeping with that, we commit sins against God. And our sins are not just minor disobedience. Instead, all sin is fundamentally a rejection of the God who created us. It's treason, it's rejection of God as king. So Christians, God shouldn't love us, but he does. He chooses to love us. I think that's something that's worth thinking about for a moment. Because the Bible says that God chooses to love his people, the church, before the foundation of the world. That means that God's love isn't just based on a whim. God's love isn't based on impulse. God's love isn't just a fad that is one day going to fade. It's, it's not a la- last-minute love, like the kid who forgets that tomorrow is his mother's birthday. No, God's love is better than that. God's love for the church isn't based on anything other than his own divine choice. God loves us because he has chosen us, and we are now his. That's really important to understand, because if we make God's love for us based on our love for him, or our obedience, or our choice of Him. Well, Christianity then becomes a works-based religion in which we have to save ourselves. Instead of resting in God's love for us and then acting in love towards other people, we'll begin wondering, well, how much do we need to love in order to be saved? And it kind of turns our love inward. It roots it in selfish motives. Our love gets stripped of what makes it love in the first place. But the truth is, is that we love because God first loved us. God has set his love upon the church. And what else do these verses tell us about the church as the context for truth and love? Well, we see here also that the church has been saved by the truth. Notice in verses 1 and 2 that John says that he loves these brothers, uh, these believers, in truth. And then he goes on and says, as do all who know the truth, because of the truth which lives in us and will be with us forever. We've been seeing this this weekend, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The truth is shorthand for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message that God in love saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus when those sinners turn from their sins and trust in him. And if you're part of God's church, if you're a Christian, this gospel is how you have been saved. No one in here has been forgiven and reconciled to God by any other means than the gospel of Jesus Christ. All Christians share this in common. We've been saved by the truth, by the gospel, by Jesus Christ. That's really why this truth must be the church's most important message. Our most important message as a church is not unity or harmony, as much as we might desire that. 
Our most important message is not some social good or advocating for some societal change that we may pray for that. Our most important message is the truth because it is the truth that lives in us that will be with us forever, as John says, and that is what grounds our love. John says he loves these brothers and sisters in truth. So church, you have been saved by the truth. God has chosen you. Now here's the implication of the church being the context for truth and love. If you are a Christian, you're meant to walk in truth and love within the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about some universal concept of the church. Sometimes you'll hear Christians say that you know they don't believe in the institutional church, by which they mean that they really only believe in the universal church, all Christians at all times and all places. But what John, 2 John shows us here is that Christians are called to live out love and truth within a specific local congregation of believers. In other words, the institutional church. Now you see it right at the beginning when John writes to a particular congregation, the elect lady and her children or church members. Then you see it at the end of the letter, verse 13, where John writes from a particular congregation assuring them that his fellow church members and their sister church send their greetings. I think you also get it in verse 3, where John says that the blessings of the gospel, grace, mercy, and peace will live in us. They will be with those who practice truth and love together. Friends, if you want to experience grace and mercy and peace, join a church. Why is that interesting? John is writing to a church experiencing a significant problem. There are false teachers in their midst. It's causing disunity. And yet, despite these problems, John is convinced that grace, mercy, and peace are best experienced within the context of a church committed to truth and bearing with one another in love. I think sometimes some Christians think that the church is actually a barrier to grace and mercy and peace. That's not what John thinks. Others think that God's grace, His mercy, and His peace, they depend on love, and they don't really depend so much on truth. Truth, doctrine, that's just something that divides. That's not what John thinks. And so others think that receiving God's grace, mercy, and peace depend on such a zealousness for the truth that it actually causes them to unlovingly write off Christians that they may disagree with on certain matters. That's not what John thinks. Here in this letter, John brings love and truth together, and he says that God's grace, mercy, and peace will be with the church that walks in truth and love, that keeps both together, so that truth informs love and love conforms to the truth. That's really what I want to spend the rest of our time talking about this morning. I want to look at verses 4 to 6, where we'll see point 2, that Christian truth loves. Christian truth loves. So look at verse 4. John says here that he has great joy in these church members who are walking in the truth, right? They're steadfast in the gospel. They believe that God created man. They affirm that mankind rebelled against God, what we call sin, and therefore they fell underneath the judgment and wrath of God. This judgment places all people under a sentence of death, and even worse, an eternal death in which God's wrath towards sin is against us. 
And yet holding fast to the gospel means that they also believe that in love the triune God acted to save when God the Son became a human, the man Christ Jesus, to die on the cross for sinners, bearing the wrath and punishment that sinners deserved. And then in power, he defeated sin and death by rising from the dead, ascending into heaven where he saves all those who turn from sin and trust in him. This brings forgiveness. It brings reconciliation. And people move from being, by nature, children of wrath to children of God. Now, there's a lot of doctrine in everything that I just said. And yet, these doctrines are the true message that John commends. And he's overjoyed that these church members are walking in it. But here's what we have to notice from verses 5 and 6. Walking in these truths entails walking in love. Look at how John defines love in verse 6. He even asks the question here, what is love? Love is walking in obedience to God's commands. And then we can say, well, what is God's commands? He answers that too, that you walk in love. Friends, do you see how love and obedience and truth form something of a spiral? As we grow in our understanding of God's truth and God's commands, we should better be able to love. And then practicing love should continuously take us back to the scripture to see how God wants us to continue walking in obedience and in truth. And in this way, followers of Jesus, those walking in the truth, will be more and more conformed into the image of Christ as we learn to love as Jesus loved. So then notice here that we don't get to define what Christian love looks like. We don't change Christian love in light of culture or light of backgrounds or family history. We don't define Christian love based on what others say is love and is not love. Instead, our love is informed by God's word and his commands. God defines what true love is, which means that we need to be prepared for God to contradict our understanding of what love is. So what does Christian love look like according to the Bible? I want to make four quick application points from 2 John about how we are to love one another as Christians. So here's application one, number one. Real Christian love doesn't impose unbiblical commands on others. Real Christian love doesn't impose unbiblical commands on others. It doesn't innovate. Notice in verse 5 that John says that he isn't writing a new command, but one that we have had from the beginning. Church, we need to be careful that we as a church or we as individual church members don't impose commands that are not found in God's word upon other people. My church's statement of faith seeks to clearly affirm what the Bible teaches. But we also want to be clear that there is freedom on those matters that God's word doesn't address. We think this is so important that one article in our statement of faith says that God alone is Lord of the conscience, which means that it is free from the doctrines and commandments of men that are contrary to his word or not found in it. And we must be very careful that we don't place fellow Christians under commands that are outside of God's word. It could be commands about alcohol or how we use our Sundays before or after church, or what books to read or podcasts to listen to, or what political or social causes to involve ourselves in. Sometimes the things that we often think are oughts need to be softened to matters of wisdom or indifference. That's application number one. Application number two is this. Christian love proclaims 
God's commands. Christian love does proclaim God's commands. So John isn't going to place Christians under made-up commands, but neither is he shying away from giving God's real commands. He says that he is giving them a command that they have had from the beginning, that Jesus has given to his church. I think John's a good model for the pastors of, of this church, or really anyone who ever stands behind this pulpit. We're not to innovate or talk about what we think is important. We're not just to stand up here and give our opinions to you about life. Instead, we are to proclaim God's full word. It is loving to tell people what God's word says. It's loving to tell people how God contradicts their understanding of reality. And it's unloving to avoid God's word or avoid God's commands. So whether preacher or church member, Christian love proclaims God's commands. Application number three, Christian love is gentle. Christian love is gentle. You know, as I preach 13 verses this morning from a, a, you know, a whole letter like 2 John, I, I don't want us to miss some of the small details in this letter. I don't want you to miss the small, almost unnoticeable detail of John's gentleness with these Christians. Do you see that when he finally gets around to naming God's command in verse 5? He asks that we love one another. He doesn't command them. He asks. I think John is a model for us. He's a model of love. He assumes the best of his Christian readers. He assumes that when they hear God's word, they're going to want to obey. He doesn't feel the need, at least at this point, to be forceful with them. You see that even in his manner communicates love for them. Friends, do you speak softly to one another? You know, we don't want to hide God's word or his commands, but neither need we over-speak. One person writes that over-speaking will turn up the temperature and turn down the reasonability and love. Hiding the truth or failing to proclaim God's commands, that's certainly dangerous, But equally dangerous is an obnoxious, overbearing disposition towards others such that the offense of truth becomes overshadowed by the offensiveness of us. Brothers and sisters, speak with gentleness and kindness and love towards one another. Don't shy away from teaching God's commands, but also show how God's commands are best for everyone and assume the best about people. Imitate John's gentleness here. I realize that more serious issues require greater firmness. And it's worth noting that that though John is gentle, he does speak directly to the people here. And as we seek to be gentle with others, how do we know which conversations are going to require more firmness and which ones we can speak a little bit more gently in? Well, I think all confrontations require wisdom, but I think what I can say now is that in any given situation, we should slow down long enough to honestly evaluate whether we are acting with love towards the person we are confronting. All right, sometimes we can have lots of other motives. Maybe our motive is pride. Maybe our motive is a dislike for the individual. Maybe the motive is wanting to put ourselves up on a pedestal. We need to slow down long enough to see whether there's really love in our heart. And if there is, well, then I think that we can kind of decide what we want to do at that point based on the situation. 
What I, what I mean by that is that sometimes you might decide that the best thing to do is to keep silent. And if that's what you decide, that's fine. But make sure you do it in love. Or you might decide in a given situation that you actually do need to confront. And that's fine. But make sure you're doing it in love. When you confront, confront in love. If you correct, correct in love. If you forbear, forbear in love. However you decide to act, make sure that love is the root of the action. The application of love sometimes looks differently in different situations, but usually I think we know love when we see it, right? If you're, if you're a parent in the room, you, I think you know what I mean, because we can correct or discipline our children out of frustration or out of love for their well-being. And how we correct them and the punishment we give might look exactly the same, but the kid knows and you know whether it's being done out of frustration or out of love. And I think the same is true as we interact with brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's application number four. Christian love is made visible in the local church. It's made visible in the local church. John asks in verse five that we love one another. It's one thing for us to say that we love other Christians, but saying that we love others isn't all that hard until we put it into practice in a real community. The reality is, is that until you join a church and commit to it, the biblical commands to love one another are, for you, just silhouettes and shadows. There's nothing all that difficult about that. Even people who aren't Christians affirm the basic morality to love all people. It's only when you start interacting with and and commit yourself to real flesh and blood Christians, Christians who may hurt you, Christians who may annoy you, that God's command can truly be obeyed. God's command to love one another includes loving fellow church members who are imperfect and weak and immature. It includes, in other words, loving other people in the way that God has loved us in Christ. I I wonder if you've considered recently the way that God has loved you in Christ. Just think about that. Jesus did not merely love us when he felt the most full and the most affirmed and the most whole. Instead, Jesus was emptied, hurt, broken, and ultimately punished by the wrath of God for our sin. And it's right there in that place that Jesus demonstrated the most profound love towards us. And since Christians are now in Christ, we too are called to love God and love one another even when we don't feel full of God's love ourselves. When we are suffering or persecuted, we love. When God feels absent, we love. When we're sinned against, Christians love. And we don't love because we feel love. We love because we have been loved. And that love has changed us. Brothers and sisters, Christian truth loves. But we also see here, third and finally, and a bit more briefly, that Christians love the truth. Christians love the truth. John switches subjects in verse 7 to warn the Christians about these deceivers. The command to love one another in verse 5, I think, should be contrasted with John's instruction in verse 10 to not welcome deceivers. 
Not only does the truth that we hold compel us to love, but we must also so love the truth that we refuse to welcome wicked deceivers. And just consider for a moment what these deceivers were teaching. John says that they do not acknowledge that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They were denying Jesus' full humanity, that he was God become man. But look at verse 9. John says, anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. What does it mean here to run ahead? Well, probably these deceivers were saying that they had found a superior teaching than their earlier, simpler version of Christianity. And as they were trying to persuade others to follow their path, they were saying, you know, look, our doctrine is progressive. You might hear today somebody say something like, you need to keep up with the times. Yeah, we, we heard that, you know, God became a human and virgin birth and all that stuff. But, you know, that's silly. Listen to our advanced Christianity. God didn't really become human. We got a taste of this heresy earlier with Serenthus. It was rooted in a cultural belief that only the spiritual world was perfect. The material was imperfect, and, and thus God would never take on the material. And to a Greek mind, the incarnation of Jesus, God the Son becoming man, was foolishness and embarrassing, and it needed to change. But look what John says in verse 9. He says, those who do not continue in the teaching of Jesus do not have God. These deceivers did not progress in the faith. They progressed beyond the faith. They embraced a whole new religion. And as a result, they did not have the one true God. I think verse 9 is a wake-up call for anyone who thinks that the teachings of Jesus or his word need improvement. Now, friends, to forsake the teachings of Jesus is to lose God. It's only by continuing in the truth that we have the Father and the Son. And specifically to Second John here, we don't want to give up the doctrines of Jesus' full humanity and full divinity. We need Jesus to be both fully God and fully man in order for us to have salvation. We need Jesus to, to be the God-man. Human sinners require a human substitute to bear God's wrath for sin. And at the same time, we require a perfect sacrifice, one who is sinless, yet able to bear the sins of his people. Friends, the Bible says that Jesus made a way for us to be reconciled to God through Jesus' own divine yet human body. And without it, according to verse 9, we don't have God. And I think verse 9 also provides me with a good opportunity to speak to anybody in the room who maybe you're here and, and you're not a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, we're really glad that you're with us this morning and it's a church that you'd be welcome to come to any time. Yeah, you need to know that you can only have God if you have Jesus. The way to God is through Jesus. And so if you aren't a Christian, you, like all people, need to know the truth. Your sin has separated you from God's love. And the only way to be reconciled to him is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can have God if you turn from your sins and trust in Jesus this morning. Or if you have questions about that, you can talk to the Christian friend who brought you. Now, church, it's important for us to see that John places this responsibility to love the truth, not simply on church leaders, but also on church members. Right? Remember that this letter is addressed to the whole church. 
So verse 8 is written to you, church members. It says, watch out that you do not lose what we have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. In other words, you are meant to know the truth and persevere in the truth so that you do not lose the truth. And how do you know the truth? Well, you open up God's word. You read God's word. God's word teaches us what is true. It teaches us what is most important. Let the Bible's emphases be your emphases. You should also know your church's statement of faith. It's meant to help you. Know it, use it, make sure that church members and church elders and church deacons believe it and teach in accordance with it. And I just want to get real practical about what this means for church members, because according to verses 10 and 11, it is the responsibility of church members to protect the truth, particularly in the context of the local church. Look at verses 10 and 11. John says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not take them into your house or welcome them. Anyone who welcomes them shares in their wicked work. Christians sometimes debate whether this verse means, you know, that we need to not share a meal with a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon. But I think it's worth recognizing that verses 10 and 11 are specifically talking about those who bring false teaching about Jesus into the church. In other words, he's talking about professing Christians who are actively teaching false doctrine. And moreover, when he says, do not take them into your house, I think we need to remember that it's actually talking about the church here. Church is often met in homes at this time. So John is specifically saying, do not let false teachers engage in the official teaching in the church. Don't legitimize their ministry. Don't support the furthering of false doctrine. You want Ambassador International Church to be a hospitable place, but you want it to be an inhospitable place for untruth for false teaching, for false doctrine. And church, God has given you elders to protect the truth within this church, but the Bible also places an element of responsibility upon all of you. And you can see that here. You're to know the truth, you're to love the truth, you're to protect the truth. Do not allow false teaching to be proclaimed from the pulpit of this church or in small groups or in your children's classes. Instead, make sure that God's word is fully and truthfully taught because Christians love the truth. Church, real Christianity involves love and real Christianity involves truth. Now, maybe you still aren't sure how these two concepts work together. And maybe you find yourself more passionate about one over the other. So let me just end with an illustration. Uh, later today, I'm going to get back on a plane. I'm going to fly back to Thailand. And suppose I get on that plane and the pilots reassure all passengers that they have a working GPS so they know exactly how to get to Bangkok. But there's no gas in the plane. There's no fuel. How far are we going to get? We're not going to get anywhere. Or let's say that the plane, plane's tank is full. In fact, there, there's so much fuel that we're going to have some left over when we get there. But the GPS is broken. Well, John is saying that truth is like a plane's GPS while love is like the fuel. Truth tells us where we should go. Love helps us get there. Love motivates us. Christians must have a GPS. They must know the truth. We don't want to fly all over the place foolishly wasting fuel. Or to quote the Bible, we don't want to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. But Christians must also have fuel. They must love. 
They want to, they don't want to just sit there and stare at the GPS, studying the route, but never getting the plane up in the air. Love and truth. That's biblical Christianity. Truth and love, that's what churches are built on and how are they are to walk in faithfulness to God. And we pray Inter- Ambassador International Church would walk in both. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do praise you for the love that you've demonstrated to, towards us by saving us from our sin in Christ. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We pray that we would hold fast to it. And we pray that you would help us to be a people that walk in both truth and love for all of our days. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.